Bibles to John chapter 4. We are in verses 27 through 45, continuing this remarkable, wonderful incident that we began looking at last week. John 4, verses 27 through 45. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him to eat, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word not just lip service we're paying to you now, not just something we're saying because we should say it even though we should say it and pray it, we're asking you by the power of your Holy Spirit, your indwelling Holy Spirit in so many of us here today, we pray that your word would not go forth and be void, empty, that these wouldn't just be words that we time and click on and throw on a website and put out there and, and, and then move on to the next thing. We pray for this holy moment where we encounter your word. We thank you that you will overcome the weakness of our minds and our ability to be uh, distracted so easily. We thank you that you gave us your word and that we can look at it together. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit's help as we do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I forget it, because I didn't put it in the sermon, and it was so interesting and so good, it does kind of give a capper uh, to to what we are going to be thinking about this morning. I read this week, uh, about an incident that happened over in Wales when Martin Lloyd-Jones was there and a lot of the, the working-class guys were coming to the Lord. Uh, they talked a lot, uh, and you hear a lot about the Welsh revival. And a man was writing, and he was commenting on this passage, but he gave a story about a man who came to Christ. He had been a drunkard, half drunkard, he was able to work his mind, 
By his own admission, he'd been abusive to his family. Violent man. Smashed some furniture, sold some furniture to feed his habit. Went to the mines, just a rough and tough man. And he was saved and transformed by by God's grace. And he put his faith in Jesus. He did what so many of you have done and what everybody should do. He repented and he trusted the Lord. And he started talking about the Lord with his workers. Some of them had some Bible knowledge and they said to him, do you really believe all that stuff like the water into wine? He wasn't a biblical literate. He was just a Christian who'd gotten saved. He said, I don't even know what you're talking about with water into wine, but I know that in my house, Jesus turned beer into furniture, and that's good enough for me. And you think about Jesus transforming and Jesus changing. When you come to Jesus, we're talking about changed lives. Changed lives. And there's a dramatic changed life. And I pray that you see and that we get to see as a church changed lives. Not us changing the lives, but Jesus changing the life and a person being able to say, come see a man. Could he be the Messiah? And that's your testimony. Changed lives. Harvest time. Last week, we looked at this text, and to catch us up, Jesus was speaking with the woman at the well. He was tired. One more proof that Jesus had a physical, earthly, human body. He had a body that got tired. He had a body that got thirsty. He had a body that needed to eat for fuel. He was fully human, along with being fully God. He was tired. Hey, disciples, you go into town, buy some food. What do you, what, what do you, what do you want us to get you? Oh, you know what I like. Just get something. Question, was Jesus a picky eater? I don't know. <laughs> um, but think about that. He either was or he wasn't, but he had, he had preferences, I would think, to what he liked to eat, just like we all do. Jesus was fully human. He sent him into town, get some food. I'll just sit here by the well. The woman comes in the middle of the day. Didn't call attention to this last week so much, but uh, commentators do talk about why was she there by herself. Uh, Usually they travel together. Uh, It's just kind of wise to do that, whatever culture you're from. And usually it wasn't the middle of the day, people who look at customs say, that she's there in the middle of the day by herself getting the water. Bit of an outcast. Maybe the word notorious uh, would be would be good. She was a character. She was known in her town. Jesus is thirsty. He asks for a drink. There's a great conversation that they have, which we will not rehash here, but you can go back and look at it. But it ended up last week with Jesus revealing himself to her as he is revealing himself to you today through through this sermon by saying, I am the Messiah. I who speak to you am the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the hope for one. He is the Savior. Uh, He can be your Savior. Change lives. The disciples come back, and it says they were shocked that he was talking with her. My question for you, as you read and think about and hear people's testimonies, of how God saved them. Are you surprised at the people Jesus chooses to save? These disciples were. I guess they forgot. I guess they forgot. Jesus chose to save them, and that was a surprise too. I was thinking about Peter's conversion. Peter, one of these disciples, surprised he's talking to her, but Peter in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus came upon these fishermen. And he said, let your nets down. And he said, hey, we've fished all night. The fish are not biting or we're using the wrong 
a bait or we're going to the wrong depth or we're doing something wrong. And it, but just because you tell us and you kind of sound like somebody with some authority, well, go ahead and do it. Maybe just to show you that they're not going to bite. And they put the nets down and, and the account is they pulled up so many fish that both boats began to sink. And do you remember Peter's reaction? It wasn't, hey, I'll put you on the payroll. You're our good luck charm. You're our depth finder. Uh, you're our one. We got to get you. No, his reaction was this. He was in awe because he knew that this was the Savior. And he said, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He was surprised that the Lord Messiah would speak to him. And now he's surprised again. So if you're a little shocked at who Jesus chooses to save, well, my suggestion for you and for me, if we get shocked or if we go look in the mirror, Jesus saved me and I know me and I don't want you to know parts of me and you know yourself and Jesus saved you. There is hope for everyone. He's surprised. They were surprised. How quickly we forget. Don't be so surprised. God, do surprise me by letting me see your saving work in the lives of people and then remind me not to be surprised. The woman leaves her water jar then. She goes into town to tell the people about the Messiah. She didn't fill the water jar to save a trip. And as she's carrying her water jar into town, sees somebody and casually says, oh, by the way, uh, you, want, you want something interesting? I just had an interesting conversation. Head up there. Yeah, I bet there's an interesting conversation. No, she forgets. She leaves the water jar goes back into the town. She tells the people, all of that town. It says she broadcast it. The people came. It's a plurality thing. She didn't tell one who told one who told one who told one. She went in and she told as many people. We don't know how many people, what percentage, but she gathered them and she said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Well, Jesus didn't tell her everything she ever did. Jesus didn't need to. At least there's no record of him going over her sins one by one by one by one by one. All he said to her was, uh, you're right, you don't have a husband, you've had five, now the guy you're living with isn't one. And she, she knew, there was an understanding. She knew, Jesus knew what was going on, and in her way of expressing it was, he told me everything I ever did. Well, he would have still been there talking to her, but it was enough. She saw her sinfulness, and she saw Jesus as the Messiah, and she told people they needed to see Jesus as the Messiah. You have a track record. Sometimes you get into churches and you'll hear people say, as they give a testimony about their lives, they'll say, uh, in my B.C. days, blah, blah, blah. In my B.C. days, that was back then. And you go, well, what does that mean, my B.C. days? And they're talking about the days before Christ, the days before they were saved by Jesus. We all have our B.C. days. Maybe we expressed ourselves in different ways. Maybe we were just insufferable with our pride and our judgment at everybody but ourselves and our views and our opinions. Maybe that's our B.C. days. Maybe we were just the party-hardy types. That was our B.C. days. We have our days before Christ got a hold of us. And when she was saved, when she transferred her trust from herself to Jesus as the Messiah, her knee-jerk reaction was to go and tell others about the Messiah. Knee-jerk reaction. Oh, I thought about that phrase when I typed it. I said, oh, I remember where that comes from. That's going to the doctor's office and they bang you on the knee and they want to make sure you, it hits the right nerve and your automatic thing is, is, is to raise that knee, your, to, to, to have your knee jerk. Uh, and the doctor's looking for that. The knee jerk reaction to this woman when she 
saw Jesus as the Messiah. She saw herself next to him. She saw his friendship to her, his love toward her. Her knee-jerk reaction was to tell people. And the people are coming from the town. It's important for us to understand this text right, to realize it says the people, uh, I'll find what verse it is, Um, they went out, verse 30, they went out of the town and they were coming to him. So there's a plurality of people leaving that town based on her words and they are making their way toward him, visibly. And now we get to the two points of this sermon. One, a transcending priority. And two, a sense of urgency. Not original to me. If I had to come up with something original that no one had ever written, uh, these sermons would be so bizarre. And, uh, a man divided them that way, and I said, that's, that's two good points that we need at Christ the Shepherd. Two good points that, that, that Pastor Hutch needs in his heart. The transcending priority and the sense of urgency. So we see the transcending priority. Woman's back. She's told him about Jesus. They're coming based on her words and her testimony, but we know the Holy Spirit's stirring the pot back there in their hearts anyway. We know that. We're, we're Presbyterians. We know that. They're coming up the mountain to see her, or up the hill, or, or over the plain, or they're, they're, they're making their way to him, whether it was up or down. But here they come. And the rabbi, the disciples are saying to him, uh, meanwhile, in verse 31, this is 31 through 34, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Eat, Jesus. Got to eat something. Got to eat something. Got to eat something. Hey, we got, we got what you like. Look, they had that in stock there. Oh, they were cooking that today, and, and we know you'll like it. Eat something. Eat something. Weren't you tired? Weren't you behind? We went to get you the food. Now eat, eat, eat. Urging him. That's what it means. They weren't just suggesting. They were like, uh, like uh, Grandma at Thanksgiving dinner when a little tiny crack of, of uh, opening of, uh, is on your plate. And she starts passing the food around again. Eat, eat, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Why isn't he eating? He was hungry. And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's the transcending priority. Nothing wrong with eating. God made us to eat. God made us to sleep. God made us to hydrate. God made us to do things that our bodies need to do. Nothing wrong with that, but there's a priority, there's a pecking order of what's the most important and what's Less important. People ate in Scripture. I was thinking about all the times that food is a part of Scripture. Manna. What are we going to eat? Here comes manna. Uh, Jesus looking and seeing people having compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what does he do? He feeds them first and he teaches them the real stuff, but he makes the, 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 the loaves and the fishes for them. What do we have and see in the book of Revelation? Uh, is there eating in heaven? Well, it depends on how we interpret Revelation, but it does talk about a marriage supper of the Lamb. And I would think, boy, if, if Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride and it's a big wedding day and it's talking about a marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, and Jesus owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he can he can afford uh, he can afford a, the best spread of all. Uh, it, it, it's in terms of eating food. Don't say don't eat, Christian. No, food's food's okay, food's fine. But right now, Jesus says you need to understand that there's a bigger priority than just the food and the next meal. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so eating and drinking 
good things, but do it to the glory of God. That's the priority. That's the highest thing. Things that transcend these good earthly things. There were times when Jesus went without sleep because there was a higher calling. What was he doing when he was out there not sleeping? The Bible says he was praying. Praying is more important than sleeping, but you better get your sleep. There were times when Jesus went without food, uh, such as in the wilderness temptation. Here, food was important, but the people from the town headed to meet the Messiah were more important. Not saying, do away with everything, everything. do away with it all. Nothing's important. Um, I'm not a golfer, but golfers, hey, good for golfers, good for golf. Thank you, God, for golf. People go out and they golf, and they, 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 they practice their little technical skills, they fellowship, they, they see the sky and the water. I, I like watching some golf tournaments. Boy, if it's a Lynx course in the British Open, man, that's fun with the fog rolling in and, and the little hills and all that. I watch it just for the, for the aesthetics of it. But I told you about a pastor I heard of. And golf was a relaxing thing for him as a pastor. Some pastors golf. Now, if you hear a couple pastors talking and they say, how was your week? Did you go see the Green family? Maybe they're talking about golf and not about the Green family. They're talking about the Greens. Uh, and, and, but, but golf became something for him that was relaxing. And he was under, he's sitting in his office. And one of his elders told me this years later, because he wouldn't blow his own horn like this. He's sitting in his office, and here's somebody from his congregation. And she's in there pouring out her soul. And he's working, he's praying, he's showing her scriptures. And they're finished. He thinks, but she keeps going, and there's more, and they're finished. He thinks, but she needs to talk. She needs her pastor. And all of a sudden, it occurs to him, he's got a five o'clock tea time. Not tea, but tea. And he starts to think, I got to wrap this up because I got to get out to the course. And I don't even know if he wrapped it up in time and got to go golfing that day. But what one of his ruling elders told me later, they said that man went to him. And he said, I need you to be my accountability partner. He told him what happened. He told him what was in his heart. And he said, I'm not going to pick up my clubs for a year. Because I put golf ahead of God's sheep. Golf is good. Boy, there's something that's better. I have food to eat, Jesus said, that you don't know about. So yeah, don't muzzle the ox that treads the grain. But there's times where that ox better just get to work. There's a priority. The treading the grain is the priority. You feed the ox so it can tread the grain. And for us, becoming a Christian, being a changed life, a life that is changed, means looking at our priorities and saying, okay, what's first, what's second, what's third, what's fourth? How do we arrange our priorities? I'm not going to kick this off the list, but I, I might need to rearrange that. I might need to, how, how you do, you list your favorite teams or whatever and Sports, if you're on a sports site, list your number ones. And, and finally, a team lets you down, and you kind of, you can, you can adjust it down and make it your third favorite, not your favorite. Maybe with our things. Not, not maybe. Forget I said maybe. With our lives, Christians, we need to be looking always at our list and saying, what's the food? What's the food? What's the food? What's the food that matters? And Jesus said, I've got food that, that, that it takes a higher priority right now. Not going to eat. Not going to hang a sign and, and say, uh, 
out to lunch. Priorities. There's a time to be about the Father's business, foregoing even your creature comforts. And are you able to recognize that time? And here's a hint. If a large number of Samaritans are coming up to you because you just had a conversation with a woman who's gotten saved and she's sent people and you know they're coming to you, that's probably the time to say, all right, uh, my, my lunch can get cold. There's spiritual food for you. It feeds your soul to be a fisher of men. Jesus said, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. So nothing wrong with the things God gives us here on earth. Nothing wrong. He gives it to you. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from the Father above. Boy, you start to store those up and hoard those things up, and then your kids are cursing as they're as they're got to rent a bigger dumpster. Nothing wrong with the treasures God gives you. But Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's a higher thing. Where moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves don't break in and steal. And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish my work. And when he's called you and he's teaching those disciples, and it's like us, we're slow to get it and we forget and all that stuff. Thank God Jesus is as patient with us as he was with his disciples. Thank God he's that way. And he's reminding us even through this text this morning. Jesus' food to do the will of him who sent him and to accomplish his work, that's your food also. Jesus says, you can, you can have that food too. You just don't know about it yet, but I'm going to be teaching you over the course of the next three years. And then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to keep teaching you over the course of the rest of your life. So now, having established the hierarchy of what is vital for the Christian, Jesus now builds on that by communicating the sense of urgency. At that moment, there was a sense of urgency. Verses 35 through 38. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And they lifted up their eyes, and it wasn't like, just picture with me, just close your eyes, and let's get a vision for whatever. Uh, no, look, here they, the fields are white for harvest. Here they come. Here comes the harvest right now. Right now they're coming. Look, open your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. See them now. That's the fields, the Samaritan town coming. He says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. And think of the word rejoice. Don't let that word uh, get, get uh, pulled into all those other little words here. Look at that word rejoice. Sower, reaper, rejoicing together. And you think of the rejoicing in heaven uh, when one sinner is converted. The angels dancing. Dispute on whether they sing or not. <laughs> that's, a, that's a little ongoing theological dispute. But they dance. <laughs> they celebrate. They joy. They rejoice. Okay? So, he says, listen, they're rejoicing together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. He's saying, make hay while the sun shines. He's saying, strike while the iron is hot. Someone's on their deathbed. They're about ready to cross either the Jordan River or the Sticks River into Hades. I bet it's time to go visit them. I bet it's time to go share the gospel. I bet it's time. The fields are wide unto harvest. Go get that harvest. Someone's just received tragic news. Someone's in the doldrums. 
and they're just on that ship of life, and there's no breeze, no nothing. They're just there, and it's depressing, and it's hard. Hey, the fields are wide into harvest. Go encourage them. Go tell them about Jesus. Go, go tell them the truth about eternity and about what's going on here and there. Uh, the fields are white unto harvest. There's a job right now, he says, and there's a sense of urgency. Uh, yes, the priority is the food that matters, but not only is it a priority right now, the fields are white to harvest because here they come, and I ain't going to eat till it's done. Go to bed tired, worn out, or you can go to bed good tired and good worn out. And there's a difference. Lord's work. That's what I'm about, he said. And there's an urgency right now because here come these people. And each person coming up that hill or crossing that plain or coming down that hill, each person that was coming to them represented even more than themselves. Yes, each individual person is an individual unit with a soul that will last forever. But there are generations and there are families and there are people attached to them. There's, there's a cultural sweeping as, as people come to know the Lord. So he's saying, that's the priority right now. I'm going to skip lunch today because there's an urgency. Another story I heard about a pastor in Gulf. A woman in his congregation takes her life. And all this pastor can still think about is his big golf vacation. He's planned to go golf a PGA course with his wife. And here in his congregation is a woman whose life is ended. A grieving husband. Friends who are new to the faith and they're wondering because they've heard this lie uh, from their Catholic church that if you commit suicide, that's an automatic ticket to hell. And they've got spiritual questions and deep things. And right now is time to cancel your stinking vacation. Go golf next month or, or, or a year from now. Jesus said there's a sense of urgency. Right now the hills are white for harvest. Drop what you're doing. Harvest. We all get tired and we all need to sleep. We all get exhausted and near burnout. We all need a vacation. We all get hungry and we all need to eat. We all get thirsty and need to drink. We all get lonely and we need companionship. We all get discouraged and need encouragement. And there's a time and a place for all these and the Lord comes along and provides those things as we need them. Sometimes you got to go it alone and sometimes you got to go it hungry and tired because there's an urgency, because the fields are white to harvest, and there's a priority, and that's God's glory in the lives of men and women. You're going to lose the crop when the hailstorm comes. They've changed the weather forecast, and you've got a farm, and you've got these figs growing, and you've got this fruit trees, and you've got, and all of a sudden there's hail that's coming. And you've got to get all hands on deck and you get your mom and you get your, your, your hired hands. You pay people whatever they ask you. Get them out there. Cover this crop. Save the crop. Urgency. Sleep two days from now if and when you've got the crop saved. And that's what Jesus is saying. There is a priority that's spiritual because that's what's more real than than the, the, the stuff that we think is real. And then there are times when it, there's a sense of urgency. And do it now. A guy told me one time about being on a staff. Pastor had divided uh, the hospital visitations among all members of his staff. He wasn't an ordained man, but he was on the staff. Couldn't call him a pastor, but he was ministering. He was an employee, and, and, and all of the, it was divided up. He was new to the town and new to the job, and there was a man in the hospital that had been coming to church, uh, routine, 
something or other. It was his day to go find that hospital, go through the red tape, show his ID, get up to that room, and, and just visit the man in the hospital. Well, he had boxes to unpack. He had things to do. And he made a halfway attempt, a half-hearted attempt. And then he said, well, tomorrow will be the other guy's turn, and he knows where the hospitals are, and this guy's going to be in there. I'll skip it. True story. The man died. And no one was there when the fields were white to harvest. And the man died, not as a member of the church, not knowing where he was, the Lord knows. That pastor was pretty mad. Because <laughs> he trusted. Fields are white to harvest. Do. Do it. These two things, the priority and the sense of urgency, led to a great result. This is our conclusion. The conversion from spiritual death to spiritual life of a multitude of people. How big of a deal is that? Or go up to heaven and grab one of them and say, how big of a deal was it that day when Jesus stayed there at the well and led you to himself to a sense of who he is? Are you glad that happened? Now God would say, let me get back to my worship or whatever it is he's doing in heaven. Worship being the main thing, but whatever, whatever is accompanying that, however that's going. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's my soul. I'm in heaven and I would have been in hell. It's a big deal. And they begged Jesus to say it, stay, it says. Uh, verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Now, he was cutting through. He said, ah, no. Calendar's changed. Schedule has changed. Pastor I love, who, who tried to, to train some of us, he said the test of your character, which sadly has been failed sometimes by some of us, he said the test of your character is when you've got a whole lot to do that day and someone knocks on your door, says, Pastor, can I talk to you? And what's your heart look like when that happens? And Jesus, when they said, will you stay here two days? Or will you stay with us? He goes, yeah, I'll stay two days. Or I'll stay. And he ended up staying two days. That's a better way to, to, to phrase what happened in, according to the text. And it says, many more believe because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They were converted. Application now. There's been application, hopefully, been attempted, but let's sum this up. Application to Christ the shepherd. For one thing, our job is to do what we've done this morning already together. There is no better way to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior of the earth than to set your alarm, get out of bed, come to church. Boy, what a, what a thing when people are coming to church to worship God together. The main purpose isn't to see the conversion of others, like we're not putting on a little act for maybe a stranger comes in who's not saved, and then we can, that's not, but boy, what a time and what a way and what a place to do God's work than to come to church. Every time we meet together, haven't we together, haven't we together declared that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the earth? Haven't we done that? It's good for our own Christian hearts to be reminded of that and to do that. It's good for the children that we bring to church. 
You need to come to church and you need to hear the gospel even as a Christian. And I wrote it because I was thinking it. Forgive me when I don't convey the sense of urgency enough. Different people have different personalities. But I'm telling you, it's important to come to church and worship God. The effect on the kids who come to church. There's a priority and an urgency to get your children to church. Lifetime impressions that are made on children who are brought to church from the infancy uh, till they uh, own it themselves or till they reject it, hopefully temporarily for themselves. very best, their own personal walk with God. At the very least, on Judgment Day, no excuse to accuse God. Uh, Let's say, let's just do the math and round it down. You will have no regrets by coming to church and bringing your kids to church. No regrets. Let's say 50 times a year and 20 years of their life, just to round things. A thousand times you're bringing your kids to hear the gospel. That's not counting the youth groups, the Sunday school times, the family devotion times, uh, the things that they have, sending them to Christian camps, putting them in a, in a school or, or with part of your school. You get to church and you bring your kids to church. And you're honoring what this passage says. Oh, I'm so tired today, so I'll penalize my entire family and sleep in. Oh, I've got a pimple on my elbow and it hurts. And somebody might think we're in COVID and they might bump my elbow and that'll really make it hurt. I've got a busy week coming up. Thursday is going to be so hard, so I better stay home and watch TV so I can save my strength for Thursday. There are times when your ox really has fallen into the ditch. There are times, and the Bible makes allowance for that, and Jesus did say the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But I'm saying... If you're a Christian, get to church. Now, if your house is on fire and you say, well, church service lasts about 90 minutes, I'm going to wait for an hour and a half to call the fire department, that's foolish. Call the fire department. Stay home that day. You're not supposed to come to church that day if your house is on fire. That's biblical. Get to church and get your kids to church and tell people and tell each other about Jesus by worshiping together and putting a priority on your worship. But the priority and urgency of sharing the gospel goes beyond once a week, 90-minute participation in a worship service that the elders have scheduled. It's day-to-day, and you exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Your new life in Christ is a life that says, I'm devoted to God. That's my food. That's my eat and meat and drink. You've been converted from death to life. You're a Christian. And you're a Christian with a commission. And it's not as hard as it may sound. Oh, I've got to tell people about Jesus. Oh, no, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. You know, what did the woman do? What did that man do who said, I don't know about water into wine, but I know about beer into furniture. Jesus has saved my life and, 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 and transformed me and, and, and my family's the better off for it. She didn't say, uh, look at, you know, explain all this. She didn't, it doesn't say that she went into the whole discussion about worship and spirit and truth and all that. She just said, there's a guy up here who told me everything I ever did. I believe he's the Messiah. Go check it out. Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the Christ? All you do is you sow the seed. You point people to Jesus. You tell people about Jesus. That's it. Boring kingdom growth. Describe the kingdom of God. What words do you use? Amazing. Awesome. Wonderful. Exponential. Boy, the fancy ones in the, in the, in the exponential. Mighty. Terrific. What analogies would we use? I doubt you'd think first of what Jesus uses in Mark 4. A sower went out to sow. How incredibly boring is that? 
in our society, that would be like saying a fry cook puts in another batch of fries, or a mechanic twists off an oil filter, or a secretary files a piece of paper. Yet Jesus in Mark 4 says the kingdom of God is like a farmer who goes out, plants a seed. Really? That's it? In this account, it doesn't even talk about him nurturing that seed or, or killing off that seed so there can be growth. Or In this power, it doesn't even talk about watering, although other places talk about planting and watering. Uh, in this one, writer of this says, if we stick with Jesus' analogy here, it doesn't really get any more exciting. The guy in this illustration plants the seed. You'd expect him to work the ground, water the field, do all the good farmer things you're supposed to do, but he doesn't. He sows the seed. He just waits. This makes us uncomfortable. The religious leaders of Jesus' day would have balked at this notion. They expected the kingdom to come because of their moral integrity. They voted for the right people. They celebrated the right Supreme Court decisions. They did all this moral stuff. And if they were doing all this moral stuff, then there's going to be a big gospel growth, they thought. The zealots, of which one of Jesus' disciples was a part, expected the kingdom to come through a revolution when the Jews finally decided to stop cowering to Rome. It seems to me that we like to think that God is in heaven, just waiting anxiously for us to finally align everything so he can bring the kingdom. God says, man, yeah, pieces are starting to fall into place. Hey, hey, troops, get ready. It's about time for us to do our work. Uh, those people are finally getting their act together. Article continued. But Jesus kind of shoots a hole in that theory of activity to bring about the kingdom. His farmer doesn't do much of anything. He simply goes about his life, and the seed bears fruit. The harvest comes, and the farmer didn't do much of anything to bring it about. Why is Jesus saying in Mark 4 that this is what the kingdom is like? Answer. He's saying that it doesn't come by the efforts of man. You can't make the kingdom come, nor can you stop it. Just as the farmer goes to bed, gets up, goes about his day, not even tending to the seed and it still grows, so also the kingdom. This means that the kingdom, the gospel, contains within itself everything it needs to grow. The writer says, I'm not sure that we've really grasped what Jesus is saying here. We tend to follow Finney's, that's Charles Finney, the great uh, manipulator. We tend to follow Finney's axiom that, quote, a revival is the result of the right use of the appropriate means. That's why he devised the mourner's bench, the altar calls, all those things. He, he was a master at manipulating people's emotions. And man, he got people down the aisle. He did. He, Finney did. If you want revival, follow the formula, says Finney. If you want to reach young families, do X. You want to reach students, do X. You want to reach boomers, do X. You want to reach intellectuals, do X. On and on and on. But Jesus said, a sower goes out and plants a seed, and the thing just grows. Again, the gospel contains within itself everything it needs to spread. People are converted through the Holy Spirit using the gospel, giving growth to the seed. The gospel does not need my excellence. It does not need my craftiness. It doesn't need me to juice it up a bit or to make it nice and shiny or appealing. The gospel, the naked, simple, unadulterated gospel is enough. The gospel is enough. That's not an invitation to sloppiness or unconcern or doing things that stand in the way of the gospel, but it's to give terrific news. That's what we do. We say, come see a man. Could he be the Messiah? And let the Lord do the work. We don't have to be persuasive enough to bring about change. We don't have to have a perfect strategy for winning back people or bringing about revival, etc. We share the gospel. We preach it to ourselves. And we go about our business. We eat, we drink, we sleep. Share the gospel.
from the church. Share the gospel there. Uh, make sure your church is sharing the gospel. Sow the word, plant the seed, trust the Lord. The little parable tells us that even though it might be boring, our task is just faithful gospel proclamation. It's going to grow. Plant the gospel, it will grow. Maybe you won't even see it, but it's going to grow. It will get to the point of a harvest. It will bear its intended fruit. Okay, what's the gospel? Real quick, summary. What do we share? Gospel is this. Your sins have separated you from God. Jesus, God the Son, came to restore that relationship. He didn't sin, but he bore the weight of every last one of the sins of those who repent and place their trust in him to make them right with God. Repent and believe in the gospel. Be saved. And there, some seeds just scattered. Scatter seeds. Let the Lord do the work, and he will do the work, and the fields are ripe unto harvest. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for what you did in our hearts. Thank you for those who are Christians who can say, I had a life that was B.C. before Christ, and I have a life now that has has been saved. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for that seed-bearing fruit growing. Thank you for your nurturing of us. Thank you for this woman. Thank you for this divine appointment. Thank you that Jesus uh, talked with her and engaged with her. Thank you that she was saved by you. Thank you that she went back and and told others about Jesus. And thank you that they were saved by you through Jesus. Thank you for these disciples who got to see this, who then got to put it into practice in their own lives. We thank you for our little church here in uh, what is increasingly a hostile uh, environment toward Christians and toward uh, your word. And we pray that you'll give us the continued wisdom and courage and opportunity to just plant that seed and to point people to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.